Good afternoon, friends. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. A lot to get to here on this Tuesday afternoon. You want to join in the conversation here today, you can reach us at 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. Like I say, a lot to get to on the program today. But let's dive right into what remains, I think, an ongoing issue right across the country, that being housing, housing affordability. It was a press conference earlier today in Ottawa. The Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Housing, uh, talking about some of the policies uh, that they've recently announced, uh, arguing that these are starting to make a difference. And maybe they are, even if you can see the point. But we've got a long way to go uh, in addressing this crisis, making sure Canada has a sufficient amount of supply to meet the demand. One of the issues we're facing, and, and credit to the Housing Minister for acknowledging this, And it's not just, you know, clearing the red tape or clearing the barriers to make sure we can get housing built. You need people to build these houses. And that's another big challenge Canada faces is uh, having enough construction workers to build the homes we're going to need over the next decade if we're going to be able to maintain that affordability. We can make enormous progress before I can say with confidence there will be a specific number. Uh, We need to overcome the challenge around the productive capacity of the Canadian workforce. Uh, Right now, uh, we're putting in place the policy framework and the investments that I have confidence will get us close to where we need to be to have a major impact on affordability. At a certain point in time, we're going to run into a new bottleneck, which is the ability to actually get the homes built with the workers that we have access to. Uh, We need to uh, bring a sharpened focus, and we are working on this, by the way, with some of my counterparts who are not at the table today, uh, to uh, bring a renewed focus to training in the skilled trades uh, for the purpose of generating a workforce to build more homes in Canada. There's a new report out today, the Alberta Construction Monitor. It's from the uh, Independent Contractors and Business Association of Alberta. And the construction worker issue is is one of the things they highlight. But, but they warn that Alberta's losing an advantage here. Like the affordability crisis is worse in other parts of the country, but it is worsening here. There is a growing gap between housing prices and income, and they say it's threatening the Alberta advantage. So joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, Mike Martins. He is president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association of Alberta, ICBA. Alberta.ca is their website. Mike, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me with you, Rob. All right, so let's talk about what this report finds, you know, as you describe it in, in the report, some affordability warning bells are, are ringing loudly here. Yeah, it, it's quite concerning. I think Alberta is typically seen as a leader in so many indicators across the country where, like, if you just compare Alberta and British Columbia, average salary in Alberta is 80000 In BC, it's fifty five. It's 25000 higher, and that's really related to the investment that Alberta can attract due to its innovation in oil and gas industry and other sectors, a great job of diversifying. But part of that, and tied together with needing to draw workers into Alberta, is we're seeing supply and demand tension here. There's just way more demand than there is supply, and we're 20 years behind the curve, Rob, in in building enough houses. Well, it's interesting because if we look at the last 10 years, as the report points out, for most of the last 10 years, uh, home prices, if we look at Calgary specifically, stayed within a fairly narrow band. But we saw a real upsurge uh, over the last three years, even over the last two years. So what changed then? Yeah, I think you can really look at that partly to Alberta's success. I think uh, former Premier Kenny and continuing on with Premier Smith maintaining the Welcome to Alberta um, uh, campaign, and people are responding. 
you know, and, and a lot of those, a lot of that is, uh, uh, of course, international immigration due to federal immigration policies that aren't necessarily the wisest or most balanced. But a lot of it's internal and domestic immigration as well, where people in D.C. and Toronto are seeing that cost savings on housing and very good wages in Alberta, and it's putting tension. And Rob, I think the critical thing is those are all good indicators. The problem is we haven't built the both the uh, infrastructure, physical infrastructure, but also the regulatory infrastructure required so that houses can be built quickly, um, safely, uh, strong, sturdy houses that stand the test of time, but also affordably. And we have not figured that out yet. Yeah, as the report points out, that between 20 and 23, the median price of a detached home jumped 42%. That if we just factored in inflation, you know, that number should be around 530000 Instead, it's now just over $650,000. So that, that's, that's an eye-popping number. Yeah, I think part of the problem is, Rob, we do compare ourselves to two of the least affordable cities in North America in Toronto and Vancouver. That's not who we should be comparing ourselves to. We don't want to become the next Vancouver or Toronto or, or pat ourselves on the back because we're not as bad as them. But that's the worst. I don't think that's the number that Alberta wants to compare itself to. We want to maintain our advantage in being affordable across the country. Um, I see policies in in Saskatchewan getting aggressive. And and I want to give some credit here, Rob, is that a lot of the cities and the provinces are doing a great job. But we are 20 years behind the curve. Getting to where we should have always been is not going to be good enough. We're going to require some, some pretty radical rethinking. Well, and let's talk about that because, you know, the, the report says there are solutions out there that if there's at least the, the will to do it, we can start to address these issues. So where, where does that need to come from? Yeah, look, I again, I, I do want to, I, I don't want to ignore the progress that's being made. And, and I can see, for instance, Calgary and Edmonton rank very high on the time it takes to approve projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I don't want to be comparing against uh, the worst performers. I want to compare the best. There's room to grow there. But I got to tell you, Rob, something I'm concerned about, um, and there's a number of examples I can point to. Most recently, the city of Calgary raised taxes uh, 7.3%, which is probably double the expected um, inflation rate for 2024. Yeah. We're expecting a 3%. So, so and people go, well, yeah, but how does that relate to development? Well, on two sides. If you're a developer and you want to build new buildings, you have to uh, estimate what people can afford to buy. So you factor in your labor costs, your land acquisition costs, your time to hold on to that land, which, of course, taxes affects that. Well, holding to the land, the tax is going to affect you. And, all, and financing and a whole bunch of other serious issues. Each one of those needs to be looked at. But on the other side, they're looking at who's going to buy this and they're saying buyers now have to pay 7.3% more on their property tax. That affects their ability and the price they can afford to pay on a home. And so I just don't understand how the city of Calgary thinks that that's a reasonable um, uh, proposition of increasing taxes 7.3%, 7.6, I think, actually, in a time when houses are least affordable. You cannot keep adding to inflationary pressures, and that's what that tax rate does. Right. So what, what should be the focus instead then? Yeah, I mean, our, our paper does mention some national uh, policies. I want to get specifically with Alberta. I, I mean, there are some cultural issues here as well. We, the, the society, we need to fight against nimbyism. If you're living near a core of a city, you're going to have to accept higher density. And I'm going to get to another issue in a moment on workers. But 
in order for us to maximize our efficiency, we do, we do not have the workforce or supplies to build the supply of homes that we need. So just to improve, we're going to have to increase efficiency of our workers and, and what developers build, and that means density. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's a lot of good that can be created uh, from density. Um, some people see the negatives, but we're really going to have to figure out how to design density in a way that works. And um, it, But we're going to have to accept that. There's no other option. Another one is City Hall is going to have to do better in controlling costs. And, and yes, I think Alberta uh, and specifically Edmonton and Calgary are working to do that. They cannot get complacent. They cannot go we're better than Toronto and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Business as usual, the current current way we're doing business is not getting us to the solution. So fees and charges, taxes, we've got to control them. We have to have more discipline. And again, it, it's pointed out already, it, 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 7.6 tax increase is the opposite of discipline. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's irresponsible. Um, and, and then I want to really talk about the shortage of workers, Rob. This is something the construction industry has been talking about for well over 20 years. We've been warning everybody that we do have a retirement. The baby boomers are retiring and we are not getting enough people back into the industry. And this is decades of not just underfunding, but it's more social where I think a lot of families are worried about their kids getting into the trades. And yet you can come out of out of high school and in the first few years, you can get paid to get your training. You can come out with no student debt and have very good wages. The salaries in the construction industry are incredible. And, and so we do need a social awareness in our K-12 system, educating people about the careers in the trades. And, and, and of course, the, the related for the reason why I bring that up is we don't have enough workers to build the homes. Yeah. This is a very scary factor. Like uh, one, one point we make in our report is that RBC, and I think CMHC had a very similar report. We're talking about 830,000 more homes per year across the country. In Alberta, that's roughly 120. Nationally, in 1972, Rob, we built 220,000 homes when there were 22 million people in Canada. Well, now we are here 50 years later. We built fewer homes than that with whatever our population is now, 40 million. Yes. It's, it's incredible. Like We have not increased our ability to build homes. And now we're saying we need to build four times as many homes just to meet the current housing demand. It, I, I'm sad to say it's not going to happen. So our focus should not be the 830. It should be what can we do better? ICBA, together with some of our partners across the country, the Merit uh, Construction Associations across the country, are proposing 400,000. So in Alberta, right now we're at 30. We're proposing let's get to 60 at least. Mm-hmm. We have to do better. Uh, and a big, probably the biggest part of that is we're going to need a bigger workforce. You want to build twice as many homes, you're going to need twice as many workers. That does not happen overnight. And I think we really need to see, see the trend of the last 20 years and start taking steps that so that in 20 years from now, we're actually close to addressing the problem. But it's not going to happen overnight. No, indeed. But there's definitely some urgency uh, on these issues. Much more, as mentioned, uh, ICBA, Alberta.ca. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. My pleasure.
Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Thanks for being with us here on a Tuesday afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you. You can reach us 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. We've got the latest test scores out this week from the OECD's Program for International Student Assessment, the so-called uh, PISA or PISA tests. Uh, and the news isn't great uh, for students here in this country. It shows Canada overall, our scores dropped 35 points. Uh, between 2003 and, and 2022, only 12% of Canadian students were high math achievers, and that's fewer than uh, some of the top uh, other OECD countries. You know, Singapore, you got 41% performed the top level. Japan, Korea, 23%. And again, just 12% uh, here in Canada. So uh, math was the main focus uh, of the test in this round of assessment. Uh, they were reading and science uh, scores, but there were fewer questions asked. Now, Alberta... It tends to fare a little bit better than the rest of the country. Uh, for math scores, Alberta ranks seventh uh, globally. In fact, we were second uh, when it came to reading and science. So that's encouraging. But overall, we've got some work to do in this country. And how much of this uh, goes back to how we teach math? There's been a lot of frustration, I think, and uh, concern about uh, a shift towards so-called discovery math, getting away from the fundamentals uh, of mathematics and whether that's correlated and connected uh, to this uh, drop in, in math scores over the last couple of decades here. Uh, well, someone who has uh, followed all of this very closely is uh, Anna Stock is a professor of the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Winnipeg and joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Anna, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here. Uh, so what do you make of these uh, these latest test scores, first of all? Sure. So the first thing is to pay attention to the trend. Um, and we've seen a, a pretty steep decline in math scores since 2003. Um, so you're in Alberta. So in Alberta, that's a 45-point decline, which is quite a steep decline. PISA equates uh, 41 points to about one year of schooling. So that's a large decline. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing to pay attention to are the percentage of students performing at the lowest levels in math. So in Alberta, you've got about You've got 21% performing below level two. And, you know, level two, that's basically where you want to be to just be able to function in society as a numerate citizen. So it's actually fairly serious, and it's a trend that we definitely would want to turn around, but we're not there yet. No, clearly not. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of focus. You know, we, we've had you on the show a few times to talk about these mm -hmm. issues over the years that there seemed to be a recognition maybe that, that something needed to change. But has that actually translated into any meaningful change in, in the classroom? Well, that's an interesting question. And so I think this kind of started with a pretty radical curriculum that was adopted by my province as well. So Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Western provinces and, and Atlantic Canada in about 2006. And so that's when we started seeing these really steep declines. And a lot of people made a lot of noise. And, um, you know, I think you're, you're going to have a new curriculum in Alberta soon, or maybe you already do, but we won't see the results of that for a while. Right. Um, but the big thing is, is just the philosophy about how to teach math is just really wrong headed. 
So math requires like a lot of practice. You've got to have really strong foundational skills and it's really cumulative. So if kids get left behind at any point, they just keep getting behind. It's impossible to get caught up. And so when kids aren't practicing enough and they're not getting explicit instruction, we're not going to see good results for kids in math. Well, and, and, and there's evidence of that. So does it seem to you we're just kind of doubling down on, on something that hasn't really been working? Oh, for sure. And I mean, if you want to see what's really going wrong, the thing to do is, you know, parents and, and policymakers might want to look into who's delivering the professional development to teachers. Mm-hmm. Because lots of people are making lots of money on delivering professional development that's based on methods that don't work. Right. And so so that sort of thing has to change. Like we can change the curriculum. But if teachers are still being told to use methods that don't work, if they're if they're you know, if people are disparaging practice, for instance, we're not going to get better results for kids. Well, and where did that come from and and why did we adopt it on such a widespread basis? Sure. So, I mean, these are just ideologies, so they're philosophies, and a lot of it sounds really good. So you might hear someone say, well, you know, we don't want kids sitting there doing lots of practice. Practice is boring, and it takes the fun out of math. It kills creativity, all these sorts of things, right? So they'll push things like open-ended problems or playing with, with manipulatives and lots of pictures and lots of group work and stuff like that. And it all sounds really good. And maybe you go into the room and there's like a buzz and, it, and everybody's like, seems like they're having fun. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if people are having lots of fun if they're not actually learning math, right? So, you know, these things often sound really good. They sound really appealing. But we really do need to focus on methods that work. And even, you know, practice doesn't have to be boring. It can be fun. And I do think that, you know, when kids work hard and they end up accomplishing things in math, they actually feel good about that. And I think we need to focus on that sort of thing more. Right. So what age are we talking about here when, when you know, we are establishing then a, a basis for all of this moving forward, right? Instilling those fundamentals. Sure. So PISA is written by 15-year-olds, if we're talking about PISA. And, you know, so the part leading up to that is really important. And and like I said, math is really cumulative. So kids do need to get a really strong foundation in those early years. Like I would say grades four, five, six are really important. They lay the foundation for algebra. And algebra is really where you want to get to because once you learn algebra, you can keep going in math and then lots of opportunities like STEM careers or careers in technology and AI are open to you. So I would say those early years are extremely important and we really need to focus on making sure that kids get a really strong foundation, it's particularly in K-8. to yeah, absolutely. As you say, I mean, these are kind of the, you know, the, the fields, the jobs of tomorrow. So this is all absolutely. very relevant. It's very relevant. And math right now is more important than ever. It is the foundation for jobs and technology and AI, data science, economics, engineering, the STEM careers. It's really important that we pay attention to this and that we give kids a really strong background in math. We Our, our economy needs it, right? But mm-hmm. we owe it to children to give them a strong foundation in math. We look at countries that, that score much higher. I mean, you know, Japan's uh, consistently in there, South Korea. Uh, interesting to see countries like Estonia and Switzerland. But, I mean, what can we draw or learn from, from countries that are performing much higher than we are? 
Sure. So you have to be sort of careful when you're looking at some of those other countries because the culture is different. So a lot of times, say, in a country like Japan or Singapore, there's a large focus on cram schools outside of outside of school, which is something we don't have here, and probably most people don't want to see it go, go that far. But they certainly do ensure a strong foundation in math so that kids can problem solve later. And definitely, I mean, we can, we can do that. I mean, we can, kids can learn their times tables earlier than they do. They can, you know, they could get fluent with fractions earlier than they do, those kinds of things. So in most of those countries, the curriculum is quite advanced. Like it's quite a bit more advanced than, than in Canada, which certainly is part of it. I mean, here in Canada, we have, you know, provincial jurisdiction over education. So at least there's an opportunity maybe that if some provinces want to go in a different direction, you know, we can sort of compare province to province. But so far, is any province really showing the, the necessary leadership on this issue? Yeah, I don't see that happening. Um, like Quebec consistently outperforms the rest of Canada. Um, they have their own curriculum, which is quite different, and and I'm not entirely sure what um, is going on in Quebec that is uh, causing the scores to be so much higher on a on a consistent basis. But generally, we do we've seen declines all across the country. So, and and no, I don't see any province taking taking the lead on it. I see a lot of business as usual, and um, you know, I I. I do think it's great that Alberta has changed their curriculum, and I actually really hope that we see positive results of that somewhere down the line. You know, one of the frustrations, I think, you know, from, from you and others in the field is that, uh, you know, it seems like the math experts are, are not involved in these conversations. It's more about education philosophy and that sort of thing. Uh, has there been any, any change in that? Are, are math experts uh, involved in, in developing any of this curriculum? Well, I think that some math experts were consulted in Alberta. I don't know how much of a say they had. You'd have to ask um, the people in Alberta about mm -hmm. that. I thought that was positive. But no, generally, um, these things do tend to be based on ideology. I'm sorry to say it, but that's, that's, that's the reality. And, and, you know, that's how, how things go. Um, I would like to see more of a focus on content. I'd like to see math, like rigorous math taught in schools. I'd like to see the focus be, let's get the content taught and let's do it well, because I think that's really where we need to be putting our focus. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll see if uh, any of this represents a, a wake-up call, but uh, we'll leave it there for now, Professor Stocky. Thanks for you your bet. insight. Uh, appreciate you joining us here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Anna Stocky, professor of the Department of Math and Statistics at the University of Winnipeg. I think one of the math experts who's really been sounding the alarm about this for quite some time. We see those scores, uh, those math scores continue to slide. So that, that's not what we want to see, right? So it shouldn't be ideological. Uh, if what we're doing isn't working, then let's let's reassess what we're doing. So to see, you know, these dramatic uh, test score declines should be indicative that, okay, we've got a problem here. <laughs> let's let's try to fix that. We, you know, we we talk about certainly one of the issues coming out of the pandemic and learning disruptions is, you know, we got to do right by by kids when it comes to their education. But you know, you look at this. I, I don't know. Are we?
Welcome back. So news came out yesterday about some big cuts at the CBC. About 600 uh, people are going to lose their jobs at the public broadcast or another 200 vacancies won't be filled. Uh, so some pretty deep cuts uh, that, you know, was interesting to hear the CEO uh, of the CBC suggest that people won't really notice. There'll be some cuts to, to programming, uh, maybe programming that, that isn't being watched or consumed widely. It sort of raises the question, well, what are we doing in the first place here? Now, there's a whole other issue of, of bonuses being paid out to top CBC executives. And maybe that needs to be addressed. I don't think they're helping their case uh, with the amount of money being paid out in bonuses to top executives. Earlier today, the Heritage Minister, Pascal Sandage, was asked about, you know, the impact of these cuts and what it means for the CBC going forward. Well, I think, uh, you know, the cuts yesterday show how deep uh, and uh, problematic media crisis is. Uh, so the public broadcasters affected by the loss of, uh, of private revenues, uh, which means that we also need to consider the entire landscape uh, when we think about the future of CBC Radio Canada. And the situation is going to be the same for decades to come. Uh, the digital platforms are not going away. Uh, the possibilities for advertising for companies in Canada and across the world uh, is more uh, broad than it ever was before. So we need to take that into account. Uh, now the decision that we need to make as a country is, uh, you know, we need a public broadcaster to support our democracy. What should it look like uh, in the current situation and the future, what it looks like, and make sure that uh, it's relevant for all Canadians for years to come. Okay, well, and look, I mean, you know, there are a lot of Canadians that would agree with that proposition that we need a public broadcaster. But does that mean an endorsement of the status quo? Look, there, there are Canadians who, who don't think we need a public broadcaster. And I think, you know, certainly the Conservatives have talked about big changes or even defunding the, the CBC. Uh, so I don't know if defenders of the status quo are necessarily doing the uh, idea of a public broadcaster any favors. Maybe now is the opportunity to think, like, what do we want that mandate to be? What do we want the CBC to be? If the minister talks about some of the crisis uh, in journalism in this country, and that's true. But I think there's some fair questions to be asked about, you know, to what extent has, has uh, the public broadcaster undermined uh, private uh, media outlets? So, you know, where the CBC fits in in that landscape, maybe that's part of it. Or what we want the CBC to do, what we want them to be. So where does this conversation need to go? But joining us for some thoughts here this afternoon, very pleased to welcome in the program uh, Chris Waddell, Professor Emeritus at Carleton University School of Journalism, also co-author of the book, The End of the CBC, with a question mark at the end there. Chris, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Uh, first of all, what did you make of the, the uh, announcement of these cuts yesterday? Well, I don't think the announcement of the cuts were a surprise. Uh, news organizations have been going through cutting for more than a decade now started out with what we used to call newspapers uh, and then more and then moved into broadcasters as the whole media environment's changed quite dramatically some of it is a function of uh, of loss of advertising to Facebook and Google mm -hmm. some of it is a function of loss of audience where people are finding different uh, different ways to spend their time or don't find that uh, that news organizations are giving them the news and information they think they want or need and some of it is also uh, the growth of new services uh, streaming services that have taken away a lot of the audience for broadcasters and uh, social media where people seem to spend lots of time on online dealing with that. So it's a combination of all those three things. Um, and the, But what it, what it does say, and is the point I think you were speaking of just a minute ago, is that the media environment in Canada has changed quite dramatically over the past decade. And it's long past time 
where there needs to have been a reconsideration of what's the role of the public broadcaster in the new media world. And mm -hmm. I think there is a role for the public broadcaster. And in a book I wrote with my friend, the late David Terrace, uh, we tried to lay out a, a ver quite a different model for the CBC that that basically um, says the CBC, sh CBC, and I'm talking about English television here because radio is different yeah. and Radio Canada is very different because it, uh, the French-Canadian, the, the francophone environment is very different and the, the role of the public broadcaster there is quite different than it is in English Canada and the audience is larger too. But um, but it's a, but we think that it's past time for the CBC to basically get out of everything except news and current affairs. And but but make a but be a very different CBC that also has no advertising, and also al which allows it to instead of being a competitor to try to work to help the rest of the news industry cope with a uh, with the changes that are actually going on by making its material available to any other broadcaster or any other news organization that wants to use it. Yeah, and I think there's some really interesting ideas there. But just to pick up on the point about advertising, because I think, you know, the idea of publicly funded uh, public broadcaster, it's kind of meant to shield that from these other pressures. Like the, the, the government hasn't cut funding to the CBC. Like that part of it is still stable. But because the CBC has become more reliant on advertising, is therefore competing with everybody else in that realm, that's part of that, that pressure you were talking about. Well, the big issue, in fact, is that since 2019, the federal government has, has allocated several hundred million dollars to news organizations, uh, not broadcasters, but what were print news organizations and newspapers, right. to allow them uh, to subsidize the wages of their employees up to a significant degree to prevent them laying people off. But what's actually uh, that's actually been happening and is continuing to happen in the economic statement a couple of weeks ago that was ex that program was extended for a couple of years they're doing that for for main for newspapers or what used to be called newspapers um because they've lost advertising to facebook and google yet at the same time the government's own public broadcaster is competing for advertising dollars against those people government is also subsidizing by running ads on cbc te television and also on the cbc website and as a that makes no sense as any sort of policy so if you were to get get rid of advertising, um, it would obviously mean CBC would have less money. Mm -hmm. But if you were also to decide that, which I think is fair, is that the CBC can no longer compete against uh, against the global streaming services for news or entertainment and drama because the global streaming services have budgets for programming that's ten times the size of CBC's overall budget. They can't compete on sports. Their biggest sports program, Hockey Night in Canada, is now owned by has been for almost 10 years now owned by rogers and rogers uh makes all the decisions on editorial content and rogers gets all the advertising revenue cbc just plays it on the on their site probably to make up to to come up to meet some of their canadian content requirements and also there are children's programming that's available lots of other places where the cbc can play a role in the future i think is in in news and information and in specific areas not the least of which is international reporting because Private media have pulled out of most of many of these areas. There's, with the exception of the Globe and Mail, there's virtually no Canadian foreign correspondents around the world at the moment. And yet we still need to be told stories about parts of the world, including parts of the world where many of our citizens have come from, uh, that are important to us. And they need to be told through Canadian eyes, not through the eyes of, of, of an American or British or French uh, news service. So, uh, And there's other areas as well. But there are opportunities now for the CBC if it stops being a competitor for advertising revenue against the private broadcaster, where it can in fact be a supporter and play a, a role in helping improve and stabilize some of the 
the, the cuts and declines that have gone on everywhere from broadcasters to, to local, uh, local news media. So that kind of a change to the CBC, and I, I do think it's an intriguing idea, but would that, I mean, to what extent would uh, the CBC exist as a platform then? Like the idea of CBC as a network or as, you know, a channel on your dial, uh, as it were, would, would that cease to exist then? I don't think it needs to cease to exist. I mean, to some extent, the model, I'd say, is a model that's not that different from, from a lot of what's on CBC Radio. Uh, CBC Radio got out of advertising back in the 1970s or 80s, quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it produces a radio a, a radio, system, radio that's very different than, than private radio. If you're traveling across the country in a car and you're switching around on your radio dial to see what you can listen to, it's pretty... If you come across a CBC station, you notice that it's different and it's distinctive, and it, it focuses on certain aspects of uh, of uh, news and information and leaves others aside. And I think that's a role for for CBC television to play as well. So CBC's role in news would that make it almost like uh, you know something akin to Canadian press, like a newswire service that can you know supplement it, uh, private media? It could be, although I would argue that, that unlike Canadian press, where where private media that uh, work with Canadian press have to pay Canadian press something, mm-hmm. I would say the CBC should, all CBC material should be on a Creative Commons license. So anybody can actually use it, which could be uh, a small newsroom that's trying to survive as it loses some journalists in a rural area of the country, or a, broad, or a broadcaster in Canada that no longer has foreign correspondents and wants to run a foreign news story. And rather than run a foreign news story from an American network, run it from someone from Canadian. So, and, and further, in, in the book, we argue that as well that, that the CBC should focus on a, a narrower range of subjects for what they're doing, and which leaves open other areas for, for private media. So that, so that you're looking basically at, at restructuring the role of the CBC and the place it plays to ensure that it has a place and also to give room for private media to try to maintain what they're doing and try to expand as well. Yeah. Well, circling back to the entertainment programming side, and, and part of the argument for the CBC being in that realm was to tell Canadian stories, not just, you know, tell stories on, on the news about things that affect Canadians, sure. but reflect that in, in comedy and drama. But in this, you know, digital world we, we live in today, is that is that less doable? Is that less relevant? I, I, no, I think it's just as relevant as it always was. But I think the objective should be not to put it on a Canadian uh, on Canadian media, but to place that programming on the global streaming services. There's nothing that says a Canadian story is inherently uninteresting to people in the rest of the world. Look at some of the successes that we've had, whether it was Handmaid's Tale or whether it was uh, um, um, Schitt's Creek that was has been picked up, at, or uh, Kim's Convenience. Some of those stories. Mm-hmm. So maybe what we should be thinking of is how can we use an institution like maybe the National Film Board to marketing Canadian programming to the global streaming services so that we can see it at home, but actually also be available to people around the world. Yeah. Yeah, Schitt's Creek's an interesting example of a show that was incredibly popular in Canada, became incredibly popular in the United States. Uh, the CBC had a big role uh-huh. in developing that, but it, it's not obviously Canadian when you watch it, so it almost in a way cuts against that mandate to some degree, doesn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, it, it's it's providing jobs for Canadians. It's telling yeah. Canadian stories. If people think the story has an international component and they can relate to it in their own community, well, all the better. 
so we're we're at a point where you know I you know I think those these conversations are going to happen. I mean, you know, the the minister, heritage minister, has been tasked with updating the CBC's mandate, but I'm not sure what kind of an appetite there are, you know, is for major changes. But what, what's your sense of what's possible or likely under this government? Well, I think there has to be major changes because if there aren't major changes. Then, then um, we may have to take the question mark off the end of our book title, um, simply because this is a point where the world is changing, and um, public broadcasting can be relevant, but it has to narrow its focus. One of the reasons of the cutbacks uh, is that is basically a statement that news organizations, and this also goes for the private news organizations. News organizations that used to try to be everything and do everything for everyone can no longer do that. They don't have the money that's coming in from advertising, and they can't afford to do it. So everybody has to make decisions about what are you good at, what do you think you can be better at, and how can you focus your money, to the money that you have, to, to achieve those objectives rather than trying to spend it across everything, where, in fact, uh, if you're spreading your cuts and spreading your spending across everything, all that guarantees is that none of what you're doing is actually going to be as good as it could be. And in this new uh, in, in this environment with all the competition and all the choice that people have, that may condemn you to not surviving. We'll see where it all goes from here. Professor Waddell, thanks uh, for your insight on all of this. Appreciate it. Make some time for us here today. Great. Thanks very much. All the best. Take care. Uh, Christopher Waddell, uh, Professor Emeritus at the uh, School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University, co-author of the book from uh, 2020 uh, with, as mentioned, the late David Terrace uh, from Mount Royal here in Calgary. Um, the end of the CBC. And again, with the, the uh, question mark uh, at the end of that there. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe things do need to change and, and perhaps changes coming one way or another, despite uh, those who, who would insist on defending the status quo. I don't know if the status quo is working. Maybe we saw some evidence of that yesterday. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.